Well, you can open to Mark's Gospel. And we will uh, be here uh, for a few months or years. Um, this is the uh, beginning of a journey through this Gospel. It's the shortest of the Gospels that we have. And uh, I think that probably uh, in a couple of years, two years, we can make our way through here. We'll begin by reading just the first three verses. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. What is this thing that we're looking at? The first verse says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the title to this book in your Bible, you see that it has been called by Christians in the past, the gospel according to Mark. You know that there are four gospels in our Bible. What is a gospel? We know what the gospel is. What is a gospel? What is this gospel according to Mark? A gospel is a historical account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth that the author records for us as good news. The word gospel simply means good news. And it's a, it's a history. It's telling us what happened 2,000 years ago. A man, Jesus of Nazareth, walked upon this earth. So why was it written down? It was written down because what happened in his life is good news for us, and we need to read about it. In other words, the form of this book, these Gospels, is actually very significant. They record for us exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. Real history. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he did do the things that we read about in this Gospel. But it's not merely facts about Jesus of Nazareth and what he did. This is written down as a gospel, as good news. You don't go to a history book to read good news, but you do go to these history books to read good news. They are written down for us because the events that they record are good news for us. In other words, it's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is not simply like a biography that's been written for us to inform us about the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't written to merely give us a good example to follow. It was written under the conviction that the words and works of Jesus Christ that we're going to read about here, that they occurred at a particular point in history 2,000 years ago, but that what happened at that point in history actually transcends history. And it has something to say to all of history. It has something to say to us 2,000 years ago. What happened in A.D. 30 actually is good news for us in A.D. 2024. These events attach to every point of history. They are good news for men throughout all of human history. They proclaim events that are worth preserving for future generations because these events are good news for every generation. And this means that we can't be content merely to understand what the gospel is saying about Jesus. 
It's not enough to know merely that he fed 5,000 people. It means that we cannot merely be content to hear what Mark thought about those events. We must be content only when we find our place in the story. It is good news for us. How does what happened 2,000 years ago and me connect? And that's what Mark's gospel is intended to do, to bridge that gap, to bring the events of the first century forward in time so that they may be good news for us today. In other words, the events of this new book are good news for us and they demand a response. Will we believe the good news? Will we look upon these events with the eyes of faith? Will these events alter our lives today? Will they alter me? That's the, God, that's the answer that we are looking for in this gospel. Who wrote this gospel? We'll spend a little bit of time here. The heading that we have, the title is The Gospel According to Mark. And all the way back, early, early church history, we have record that it was John Mark who wrote this gospel. Mark is his Roman name. He had a Roman name. His Jewish name was John. And thus, the man who writes this is a Jew. You can find that in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. He lived in Nazareth. I'm sorry, he lived in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus of Nazareth. And we know that because of what the writer of Acts tells us in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. His family was probably wealthy. His mother owns the home that the church gathers in to pray for Peter's release from prison. And so that church was fairly good sized. It must have been a sizable house if they selected that one in which to gather for a prayer meeting. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 tells us he's Barnabas' cousin. And Mark chapter 14, verse 51, speaks about a young man who was seized in the garden by the, by the soldiers as they came to arrest Christ. And that young man left his linen cloth that he was wrapped in behind in the hands of the soldiers and flees. And there is many reasons to think that that young man may have been John Mark himself. And so he does appear in this gospel, perhaps. That's who, John, that's who Mark was. What do we know about this man? Well, the Gospel of Mark was written by a man who had heard the preaching of Peter and Paul. And this actually is really helpful for us as we try to understand what's going on in this Gospel. Mark, first of all, was very familiar with Peter's preaching and teaching. Peter calls Mark my son in 1 Peter 5.13. And Eusebius, who was a church historian of about 1,600 years ago, he quotes a man named Papias, who knew John the Apostle personally. And Papias tells us this. Mark, having become the interpreter or the recorder of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. So Papias, who lives about 50 years after Mark's gospel was written, tells us this gospel is Peter's preaching. And Mark has simply recorded what he heard Peter preach. Irenaeus, who lives about 75 years after Mark writes the gospel, says this, Mark, the disciple, was the interpreter of Peter. Peter handed down, or Mark handed down to us in writing what Peter preached. So we have two from, the, from ancient church history who were telling us, this is Peter's preaching. This is what you would have heard if Peter had preached a sermon to you. 
And there are some hints in this gospel that Peter was the one uh, who stands really behind it. For example, you can compare the first and the last mentioned apostle in the book of Mark. You know who it was? Peter occurs first. Peter is the last one to be spoken about in this gospel. And in the gospel of Mark, Peter is the only one of the apostles who Mark ever says remembered anything. In other words, what's going on in this gospel is what Peter remembered about the life of Christ that he proclaimed and that Mark himself wrote down. So Peter, Mark is very familiar with Peter and his preaching, but he's also very familiar with Paul and his preaching. He enjoyed a close relationship with Paul. We won't look at Acts 12, you can read it later, but you remember that Paul and Barnabas go to the church in Antioch and that church hears about the famine in Jerusalem and the persecution, and they determine that these Gentiles in Antioch will send a relief offering to Jerusalem to help the saints in Jerusalem. Who's going to carry the money? They can't do a bank transfer, so Paul and Barnabas carry the money to Jerusalem. And it's while they're in Jerusalem, it seems, that Peter is imprisoned. The church gathers in John Mark's house to pray for his release. Peter's released. He shows up at the door. Rhoda thinks it's simply Peter's angel. In other words, John is seeing both Paul and Barnabas bring the offering. He's also seeing the release of Peter. He's seeing some pretty remarkable events. And when Paul and Barnabas leave Jerusalem to go back to Antioch, they determine that they will take John Mark with them. And so John ends up, Mark ends up in Antioch, and that was the church where Peter and Barnabas are preaching and teaching regularly. And so he sits under their teaching in Acts chapter 13. Uh, for some time, and when the church in Antioch determines to send Paul and Barnabas out, John, Mark, actually accompanies them on the first missionary journey. We read about them traveling through Cyprus, the three of them. They finally land in Antioch of Pisidia, and it's there that John Mark deserts the team. And he returns not to Antioch, not to his church family in Antioch. He returns to his mother, apparently, in Jerusalem. Even though John Mark does desert Paul early on in his ministry, later on, Paul urges the church at Colossae to receive him. Paul says of John, Paul says of Mark to Philemon that he is my fellow worker. And at the end of his life, Paul requests Timothy to bring Mark to him in prison because Mark is useful to Paul. Here's a man who begins with Paul, deserts, returns to Jerusalem, and yet later on, Paul says, bring him. He is profitable to me. And so Mark's gospel was written by a man of intense struggle to follow Christ. Paul and Barnabas travel out on their missionary journey. Mark goes with them for a time, but he draws back. That was Mark's story. But he is recovered. And both Peter and Paul, at the end, say he's profitable. He's the one that we want to minister. Mark knows what it is then to fail as a follower of Christ. Why he deserted, we're not sure. But he returns and Paul deems his desertion serious enough that he would not be fit for future service. You remember their dispute in Acts 15. And in fact, Mark, who writes this gospel, having deserted, drawn back, is very much like the preacher who he's heard, whose sermons he records here. 
Peter himself, in this gospel, denies Jesus Christ and draws back. And so Peter really here is painting his own picture of how he came to regard Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. And the deeper conclusion that he is the Son of God. Peter is recounting his own desertion of Jesus of Nazareth, but how he himself was recovered to become what Mark opens with, a fisher of men. And so there's two conclusions here that we can draw. The first is that Mark is familiar to both Peter and Paul. He's received their preaching. Peter has preached the gospel to the Jews, and Paul has preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And it seems then that Mark writes his gospel to both Jew and Gentile. He writes to those who have embraced Paul's and Peter's messages. And he writes to give them, verse 1 of Mark, the beginning of the gospel. How did we come to these conclusions? He wants to give us the backstory. He wants to give us the account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, whom Paul preaches, whom Peter preaches. He wants to tell us how they all came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and how that became a settled conviction with him that restored this deserter. And so the second conclusion I think we can come to is that it seems that Mark himself struggled to follow Christ. We know that from Acts. Perhaps he deserted Christ himself. Perhaps he was the young man in Mark 14 who deserted Christ in the garden and fled naked. We know that he deserted Christ's apostles in the midst of their mission to take the gospel to the world. And yet, at the end, both Peter and Paul commend Mark. He has recovered. What brings about that recovery? I would like to think that what Mark records here in this gospel is what brought about that recovery. This is Mark's own answer to the question of what restored him. What brought this deserter to the settled conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who ought to be followed all the way to death. He ought to take up his cross and follow Jesus Christ to death. What brought Mark to follow Christ fully towards the end of his life? And the answer is the story that he tells us here. So what is that story? What does Mark record? We're going to look at four characters that are big in the Gospel of Mark. And we will look at several unique emphases, and then the story itself in summary. There are four different main characters in the Gospel of Mark. The first is obviously Jesus Christ. He's the central character in Mark's Gospel. He's the center of every paragraph in Mark's Gospel except two. One of them is the opening paragraph referring to John the Baptist, and the other is the account of the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. But apart from that, every paragraph, every section of Mark, Jesus is the central character. His name, Jesus, occurs 94 times. He performs over 500 actions in this book. Jesus is said to act 500 times. And where he comes from in Mark is not immediately clear. He simply comes into Galilee preaching in the first chapter. But from the beginning to the end of the book, he's always on center stage. In the first half of the book, the first eight chapters, he goes about preaching and casting out demons and healing. In the second half of the book, he undertakes and steadily progresses on a journey to Jerusalem, which ends at the cross. 
So preaching, healing, casting out demons, first half. Second half, journey to Jerusalem and death on the cross. And for the majority of the story, he remains disconnected from the center of life in Israel. He lives in the land, but he never visits Jerusalem until the end. It's not until Mark 11, the final week of his 33 years, that Mark ever portrays him as entering into Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem and Jesus are separated until the end. The second major character in the book of Mark is the crowds. We see them everywhere. 39 times we see crowds in Mark's gospel, and most of those occur in the first half of the book. The first half, and then the final week in Jerusalem. To be sure, that crowd that we read about is never composed of exactly the same people. There's different people in that crowd every time. But the crowd stands for the masses of the common people who heard about Jesus and sought, for one reason or another, to follow him. Jesus teaches the crowd. He heals the crowd's diseases. He relieves the crowd of demonic influence. And the crowd makes Jesus' ministry and movement very difficult in Mark. And Jesus frequently separates himself from the crowd for a while in Mark. The crowds in Mark move from enthusiastic receivers of Jesus at the beginning to bitter rejectors crucify him at the end of Mark's gospel. It's the crowds who gather nearly every time he appears anywhere. They gather to receive his healing touch, to hear his teaching, to marvel at his authority. But when he appears in Jerusalem before Israel's leaders, the crowds reject him at that point. They clamor for his crucifixion. And in the end, Pilate condemns Jesus to death because he wishes to satisfy the crowds. The third major character in Mark's gospel is the disciples. They are called the twelve, they're called the apostles, they're called the disciples. Jesus calls them from the very beginning. The first thing he does is call four of them to follow him. And they are with him almost to the end. Much of Jesus' teaching has to do with what it means to be a disciple in Mark's gospel. And we see these 12 in some circumstances living up to what Jesus has taught. They are following him. And in other circumstances, all that Jesus has taught about what it means to follow him, these men are failing miserably to do that. Why does Jesus have these followers? Mark's gospel gives us two answers to that that we'll come to in a couple of months in chapter 3. First, Jesus calls them to be with him in order that they might be his followers disciples and second he calls them so that he might send them out so that they would be his apostles he calls them to be with him as his disciples and to send them out as his apostles and throughout the gospel jesus sends them out at various points but even at the end that final week jesus is not calling them apostles he's still calling them disciples they have not yet reached the stage of being sent out to be his apostles. That phase of their discipleship awaits. And Jesus has high ideals for his followers in Mark's gospel. He expects them to see and to hear and to understand his preaching. And yet, their spiritual sensitivity and perception is so dull, they don't get it again and again and again. They are slow 
They are hard. Jesus says his disciples must take up their cross and follow him. And that's something that we never see the disciples do in Mark's gospel. In the end, as Jesus is taking up his own cross, all of his disciples forsake him and flee. And so we are left wondering if these disciples are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Will they ever become fishers of men? Will they ever become apostles? The fourth main character is Israel's leaders. These are the custodians of Judaism, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests. They come from Jerusalem. Nearly every time we see them, they have come from Jerusalem. They watch Jesus from a distance and they criticize him in their hearts. From the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the first time we meet them, they are opposed to Jesus Christ. He seems to threaten their authority and position as Israel's leaders. But it's not just the religious leaders that we see in Mark's gospel. The secular leaders of Israel are also against Jesus. Specifically, the Herodians are four times said to side with these religious leaders in their opposition to Jesus. And yet the opposition does center ultimately in these religious leaders. Mark's gospel concludes with the cross... It's the religious leaders who finally pronounce him guilty of death. Pilate only sentences him to satisfy the crowds that the religious leaders have stirred up. And so it's the religious leaders ultimately who reject Jesus of Nazareth. From beginning to end, they are against him. He has come to proclaim and set up a kingdom. And these do not wish to enter it. What are some unique emphases in Mark's gospel? that are different from Matthew and Luke and John. Mark's gospel includes, first of all, very little teaching of Jesus. Jesus is constantly teaching, it says. We see, even in Mark 1, that this was his priority. He came forth to preach. And yet, what he preached, we're not really sure. Because that's not recorded for us in Mark's gospel. There's very little of the actual content of what he taught. In, Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel... One-third of the chapters contain the very words of Jesus' teaching. In Mark's gospel, that 36% of Matthew drops to 12% of Mark's gospel is actually the words that Jesus taught. He does a lot, but he doesn't give us Jesus' teaching. Secondly, there's a huge emphasis on the disciples and the crowds who all are flocking to Jesus to follow him. They're with him constantly. He has to purposefully withdraw to get away from them. But while he's trying to get away from the crowds and the fervency, while he's trying to keep all of that under control, he selects 12 disciples to be with him. The crowds he's ready to distance himself from. The disciples he wants to bring to himself. He wants them to be with him. Another unique emphasis in Mark's gospel is that nearly 60% of this book is either Christ's journey to Jerusalem and the cross or the account of what happens in Jerusalem as he dies upon the cross. That's a huge percentage of the book. Of 33 years, there's one journey and one week that is the 60% emphasis of this book. 
Over half of the book is taken up with either Jesus' journey and his repeated predictions on that journey of what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem or the events themselves that transpire once he gets there. And even from the beginning of the gospel, from the middle of chapter 2, opposition from the leaders that will bring about the death of Jesus in Jerusalem is already mounting. And the anticipation that Jesus will die in Jerusalem begins all the way back in chapter 2. We see that the wine, the new wine, will be destroyed. And finally, there's a huge emphasis in Mark's gospel on Jesus' attempt to keep his identity in his works of power secret from the Jews. Whether it is the demons who know who he is, or those he has healed, or his disciples who finally figure out that he's the Messiah, Jesus is constantly and sternly charging people to keep quiet. Don't let that news out. Be silent. The Gospel of Mark opens with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But all the way through the Gospel, Jesus wants to keep that a secret. He doesn't want it proclaimed. Why? There are small sections where Jesus actually encourages those whom he has healed or delivered to go and tell what great things God has done for you. But on the whole, he wants to keep it a secret. What's going on? That's something we'll have to sort through as we get into Mark's gospel. So what is the story itself that Mark tells? And here we'll flip through the gospel of Mark together. Mark tells us in verse 1 that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's good news about Jesus. What is this good news? Notice verse 1. The good news is that Jesus is, first of all, Christ, Messiah. And secondly, that he is the Son of God. We'll come back to those two, Christ and Son of God, next week. They actually fit together. We'll look at that from the Old Testament. But this is the good news, that he is the Messiah, number one, and that he is the Son of God. I think a lot of times we think about Mark as a gospel of servanthood. But Mark doesn't think about Jesus as a servant. He thinks about him as Messiah. He thinks about him as Son of God. And that is good news. This is the beginning of the good news, Mark's gospel. In other words, this is how the gospel, the good news, began. But that's strange, because this is not how the good news began. There's no account of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. He simply comes into Galilee, verse 9, preaching. This is not actually how it began. In other words, this is the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and this then is how it began for Mark. Or how Mark came to understand and see it as good news. This is the story of how Jesus' followers came to regard him to be what he was, the Messiah and the Son of God. It's how they came to see that as good news. In other words, there was a journey that Mark and Peter and Paul undertook to finally see him as the, as the Messiah, the Son of God. And that journey had a beginning. And this is where it began. Here is the beginning. And Mark is going to lead us through to that conclusion that he is Messiah and Son of God. 
How then did they get from this point to that conclusion? This is their journey. And this then is their journey towards more faithfully following Jesus as Messiah and as Son of God. And there's two stages of the journey. I want you to look with me in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus, Christ, uh, Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Verse 30, he strictly charges them to tell no one about him. In verse 31, he begins at that point. Peter's confessed. Now he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And that's striking. If you go back through the gospel to chapter 1, Jesus has not taught his disciples this yet. There's no understanding that Jesus will die. That he will suffer and die up to this point in the gospel. Here's where he begins. And that means that this is a breaking point in Mark's gospel. There's two halves now. There's before he taught them this, and there's after he taught them this. In Matthew's gospel, this confession that Peter makes here, you are the Christ. Jesus looks at him and says, the Father has taught you this. Not so here in Mark. How did Peter come to think of Jesus as the Messiah? How did he reach that conclusion? Jesus has never taught them this. And the answer is, the first eight chapters of Mark. This is how they came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. The first eight chapters of Mark. And having reached that conclusion, Jesus begins to teach them that he must suffer. The story of what led Mark to the conclusion and Peter to the conclusion that he is the Messiah is told to us in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8. And yet, concluding that Jesus is the Messiah is not enough in Mark's gospel. That's not actually the good news yet, that he is Messiah. Mark wants to take us a step further. And we know that because of how the book opens. Flip back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus is introduced to us in verse 1 as the Christ. You could think of that as chapters 1 through 8. But he's also called the Son of God. Is that chapters 9 through 16? And the answer is, sort of. The idea that he is the Son of God actually begins before chapter 9. It begins in chapter 1, verse 10, with Jesus' baptism. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, those torn heavens, a voice came, you are my son. So the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus as the son of God. And it's midway through that Peter determines he's the Messiah. Turn back with me to chapter 8. Immediately following Peter's confession in chapter 8 that he is Messiah... And Jesus beginning to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, we find the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, which climaxes with heaven itself again proclaiming, You are my beloved Son. 
Jesus is Son of God, again in Mark's Gospel. And now turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Look with me at verse 38. Verse 37, Christ breathes his last breath, cries with a loud voice, and dies. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So that, Mark, so that Jesus is the Son of God is the concern of Mark all the way through. Regarding him Messiah is a step on the journey, but coming to regard him as Son of God is where the Gospel of Mark climaxes. You say, the centurion looking at him, truly this man was the Son of God, is that really the climax of Mark's Gospel? We'll look at this as we come later on in Jesus' baptism, but what occurred at his baptism? The heavens are torn open and a voice proclaims him the Son of God. In Mark 15, the veil of the temple is torn open and the centurion proclaims him the Son of God. It's a deliberate parallel. Mark is gathering us up in chapter 1 and carrying us all the way through to that conclusion. But I want you to turn back now to chapter 1 and I want you to see one more thing about this. The story begins in chapter 1 with God's own pronouncement from heaven in verse 11 that Jesus is the Son. But who hears this pronouncement? Notice how Mark writes it. Verse 10. When he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens and he saw the Spirit and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. Who heard the father's voice? Well, probably they all did. But Mark says Jesus is the one who saw it. Jesus is the one who heard it. Mark writes this not as something that God says to everyone else, but as something that God says to Jesus. In other words, it's a secret between the father and the son that no one else at this point knows. And in fact, throughout Mark's gospel, we find demons who come to him and say, I know who you are, the Son of God. And Jesus says, be quiet, don't tell anyone that. Three times Jesus silences demons who want to say, you are the Son of God. And he says, don't tell, keep that quiet. It's a secret that Jesus wants to keep. Why it is kept a secret is a major part of Mark's gospel that we will come to an understanding of eventually. But... Here's the important point at this point. You got to hear the secret. You got to read Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And from the very beginning, we know that he is the Son of God. From the very beginning, we get to hear what the Jews didn't. The Father's voice from heaven. That he is the Son of God. In fact, in the first 13 verses of chapter 1, that's what they're all about. There's three witnesses here that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he possesses authority over everything that he will face throughout the story. We get to start the story with the conclusion already in hand. 
His triumph is certain from the outset, and Mark is letting us in on the secret from the very beginning. He's giving us then the conclusion that they reached at the end. He's giving it to us up front. So what then is Mark doing in the rest of his gospel? If we already know the conclusion they got to in chapter 1, what is he doing with the rest of his gospel? Well, let's examine those two sections, 1 through 8 and 9 through 16. What is Mark doing in this gospel? The first section, verses, chapters 1 through 8, he's moving us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter comes to that conclusion at the end of chapter 8. But that conclusion is not sufficient because the Gospel of Mark is not over at the end of chapter 8. And the Gospel actually opens with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And I want you to turn to chapter 8 now and just notice what happens previous to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. We have here a strange account beginning in verse 22 of the healing of a blind man. A blind man who is healed in two stages. The first stage, he fini Jesus finishes his work and the man sees men. But they look like trees walking around. His sight is not clear. The work is not over. Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah. And then, verse 32, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter's sight is not quite clear yet. Why? Because, verse 33, he is setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Peter sees some things, but not clearly yet. He sees the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, from his own vantage point. And throughout the second half of Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to say, you think the Messiah has come to bring you victory. The Messiah has come to serve. And what you think has got to be turned upside down. Peter can't see Jesus as a suffering Messiah. He can't see that as a good thing. That can't be God's plan. And what Peter is missing is that Jesus is also the Son of God. If he grasped both of those, he would see clearly. The second major section of Mark, beginning here in chapter 9, the end of chapter 8, leads us to this deeper conclusion. And we've seen the climax of that with the centurion. He is the first person on earth in Mark's gospel to enter into the secret too. The centurion is the first human being to understand that Jesus is Son of God in the gospel of Mark. But by the time Mark writes his gospel, there's a lot of other people who've entered into that secret too. People like Paul and Peter and Mark himself. How did they get there? What brought Peter to confess him to be Messiah? And what brought the centurion to confess Jesus to be the Son of God? And that's what makes up most of Mark's story. So we see these two sections. Let's go back and break each one of them down briefly. And then we will be finished this morning. I want you to look at the first major section back in chapter 1. After an introduction, it begins in verse 14 with Jesus 
coming into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the good news. This section runs from chapter 1, verse 16, to the end of Peter's confession in chapter 8, verse 30. And this section breaks down into two subsections. Okay, So chapter 1 through 8 has two subsections. The first is in chapter 1, verse 16, through the end of chapter 4 almost. So flip over to chapter 4. This section ends in verse 34. The conclusion of parables. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately he was teaching and explaining everything to his own disciples. That's the end of the first subsection of Mark's first major section. And in this section, we will find that Jesus exercises authority to forgive sins, to teach God's law, to exorcise demons, to call disciples and a new Israel into existence, to break the Sabbath. Jesus exercises a massive amount of authority in these first four chapters. And the high point of it all is in chapter 3 when he claims to be Lord even of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath? Such great power attracts the crowds and they swell and they throng him. He's popular. Such claims of authority, though, also lead him into conflict with the religious leaders and they plot to kill him. And thus, Jesus is both popular and received with joy, but rejected the object of a death plot in these first four chapters. He's come to proclaim the dawn of God's rule over this world. It's a reign that will bring life yet he is to be rejected. The second part of this is in chapter 5 through 8. Turn with me to beginning to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4 verse 35. The account of the crossing of the sea concludes with this question. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus has claimed great authority. Demons obey. Sickness obeys. The Jewish leaders must obey and they won't. The winds obey. Who then is this that exercises such authority? And this section will move all the way through to Peter's confession in Mark 8. That he is the Messiah. Who then is this? He is Messiah. Is Peter's conclusion. Sorry, I lost my place here. Yes, okay, here we go, sorry. The major question this subsection puts to us then is who then is this? And the disciples at the beginning don't have an answer to that. And Jesus works with them over these chapters through chapter 8 until Peter comes to the answer in chapter 8 that you are the Messiah. And at that point, look with me at chapter 8. Verse 31, that's where Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This next section, chapter 8 through 16, breaks down into two subsections again. The first section is structured around three predictions that Jesus will die. We see them in chapter 8. We see the one in chapter 9. And we see one in chapter 10. 
He's on his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, he stops three times to tell them what will happen at the end of his journey. These three predictions show us what it means to follow Jesus. To continue to follow him will mean suffering and death, followed, though, by resurrection. Enthusiastic disciples like the crowd who want to enter into the kingdom of God must follow him to suffering and death. They must take up their cross and follow him. And the subsection ends at the end of chapter 10 with the healing of another blind man. But this blind man is healed in a single stage and his sight is clear at the end. And the result is chapter 10, verse 52. Go your way, your faith has made you whole, but he does not go his way. He recovers his sight and follows Jesus on the way. Jesus is on the way. Bartimaeus follows him. He's been healed. His sight is clear. And Bartimaeus follows him on the way that Jesus has been calling his disciples to walk with him. This is the conclusion of the first section of Mark's second part. And in chapter 11, we reach the final section of Mark's gospel. Two main sections, two subsections. Two subsections. This is the final of that subsection. The section runs from chapter 11, verse 1, to the centurion's pronouncement in chapter 15. In this section, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He immediately enters into conflict with the temple, all who preside over him, all, all who preside over it. He expels the money changers. He curses the fig tree, a picture of what will happen to the temple, that it too will be cursed and wither and die. He confronts the religious leaders in the temple over the course of three days, and all of the conflict climaxes at the end of chapter 12 when he observes the widow putting her last two mites into the temple coffers, casting the last of her life sustenance into that money box. He sees the temple is literally squeezing the life out of its slaves, and Jesus leaves. And he sits on the Mount of Olives and foretells in chapter 13 the destruction of the temple. The fig tree that he cursed will be coming down. When will the temple be destroyed? We'll sort through this when we get to Mark 13, but it will be destroyed when the Son of Man comes. When will that be? When will the Son of Man appear? The disciples are told to watch for it in chapter 13. Could be at evening, Jesus says. Could be at midnight. It could be when the rooster crows. Or it could be at dawn. The disciples, he urges them, stay awake. Watch for his coming. When he comes, the temple will be destroyed. He says... The Son of Man will come in the clouds with power and great glory, and that will be the end of the temple. And that's the conclusion of chapter 13. Chapters 14 and 15 is the beginning of the actual death of Jesus. And as we come out of chapter 13, we are wondering, will this be when the Son of Man appears? It's a section where all the predictions that he's made of his death will come to pass. 
The plot to arrest and murder Jesus becomes a real possibility at the beginning of chapter 14 when Judas offers to betray him to the religious leaders. Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. They depart into the garden where he urges them, stay awake, watch. It is evening. Perhaps the Son of Man will appear at evening. The disciples fall asleep, but Jesus submits himself to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. And the betrayer appears. Jesus is arrested. All the disciples flee. Jesus is led to the Jewish council. He is condemned as Christ and Son of God. Significant in Mark's gospel. And he says to the high priest, You will see the Son of Man coming with power and glory in the clouds. The Son of Man will appear. And the high priest will see it. The trial is complete and it's midnight. Will this be the time when the Son of Man appears? It's a time to be watchful. But Peter denies his master at midnight. Jesus is delivered to Pilate. Before he does, a rooster crows. Will this be the time when the Son of Man appears? It's dawn now. Christ stands in Pilate's judgment hall. He's condemned as king of the Jews. It's dawn. Will this be the appearing of the Son of Man? He's mocked and crucified and mocked again. You who are going to destroy the temple. Destroy the temple. Come down. We will believe. If you are the Christ, come down. We may believe, they snarled. He is crucified and marked then as a destroyer of the temple. And he breathes his last and dies and the temple curtain tears. And every reason for which that temple stands to separate God and man is over. He has destroyed the temple in his death. And the centurion looks at that and pronounces him son of God. The Son of Man, the Son of God, has appeared. And there's one man who has eyes to see. It is the centurion. There are women looking on, however. They followed him all the way from Galilee. It's the first time we find anything, about, out, anything out about them. The disciples the night before had fled, but not the women. They followed him all the way to the cross. And it's three days later that they come to anoint his body for burial. The kingdom hasn't come yet because Joseph of Arimathea, who buries him, is said to be still waiting for it. The women who followed him all the way from the cross three days later come to anoint his body for burial. The stone is gone. And a young man announces that Jesus is not here, but is risen. He will appear in Galilee. Meet him there, the young man says. The women freeze in terror. And they tell no one. And that occurred at dawn. The Son of Man has appeared. But the women tell no one. The disciples have fled. What does all of this mean for us? And this is what Mark's gospel holds for us. Why does Mark want us to follow him to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son 
of God, and that that appeared in his death and resurrection? And the answer is because he wants us to follow that, him to that conclusion because that is the good news. And such good news has got to be told. But there's something that seems upside down about this good news. And we see this in the second section of Mark's gospel. Just after that first prediction that he will die in Jerusalem, Jesus ascends a mountain. He's transfigured. It's a high point. The highest point in Mark's gospel so far. What glory we see upon that mountain. A voice from heaven again proclaims him to be the son of God. In the midst of his predictions of suffering and death, the Father proclaims him Son of God. And this time, the disciples, three of them, get to hear it. They're part of the secret now, if they will believe. The events of this section, from chapter 9 to 16, start at this high point on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they finish all the way down in the valley of his crucifixion. And the disciples who followed him up the mountain longed to stay there with him in three tabernacles. And the path has led down. And they have followed for a while. And then they forsook him and fled. He suffers then and dies alone. But it's there in the midst of his sufferings and death that earth finally sees him as son of God. The centurion reaches the conclusion that Mark has wanted his, reach, his readers to arrive at from the very beginning. When the centurion saw how he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And it was that journey then, the journey from glory down to death. It is that journey of him taking up his cross and following God's will all the way to death. It is that journey that is the good news that brought to Peter the conviction that he is the Son of God. How is this good news? And this is what Mark's gospel is here to tell us. How the glorious Son of God took up his cross and was obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. But Mark's gospel is here because good news is supposed to be proclaimed. Who will proclaim it? Not even the women who followed him faithfully all the way to the cross are prepared to proclaim it. They hear the announcement of the young man at the tomb and they flee and say nothing to anyone. Jesus had said though in Mark 13 that when the Son of Man appears in power and great glory, he would send forth his messengers to gather his elect from the ends of the earth to proclaim the good news when he appears. It was in Galilee at the beginning that Jesus had first called four fishermen, calling them to follow him. These four, though, have abandoned him. But he appears again, resurrected in Galilee. The Son of Man appears. And he sends forth his messengers to gather his elect from the ends of the earth. He appears in Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. The secret was kept from the Jews, but here in Galilee of the Gentiles, he appears to send forth his messengers. But what messengers does he send forth? We never find in Mark's gospel that he sends forth the apostles. 
The women were too quiet, too afraid to go forth with the message, even to carry it to his own disciples. Is the task up to us? Are we to see the Son of Man appear in Mark's Gospel? Are we to follow him to death in the proclamation of the dawn of God's kingdom? And that's where the power of Mark's Gospel assures us. Because these who have abandoned him were once followers of Christ. They didn't see and they didn't hear. But Jesus had said, you will. You will see. You will hear. And you will be fishers of men. In the book of Mark, this is the preaching of the deepest of those deserters, Peter. He has seen the Son of Man appear. And that was good news. It's something to proclaim. And it's something that he proclaims to us now through Mark's own pen, telling us how he came to regard Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and how he came to see that that was good news. It was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that his eyes were opened. The sight that Jesus urges him to have all the way through the gospel, finally, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he receives that sight. And so, will you enter into the narrative and let Peter and Mark lead you to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? That this is good news. And with Peter, a recovered Christ denier, will you too proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth? This is the path that Jesus, this, this is the path trod by Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, down, down, down. And anyone who wishes to follow him must deny himself, take up his cross. Followers of Jesus will gain the whole world, but it is life that is gained by the cross. And that is the good news that Mark has to proclaim to us. And so I think an appropriate title for Mark's gospel would be The Way of the Cross, Following Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And a lot of what we've looked at this morning has been purposefully vague. Uh, we'll come back and fill this in. But these are the major ideas that we'll find in Mark's gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this book. I pray that you would open it up to us as we proceed through it, that we might see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that our faith in him might be strengthened, that we would take up our cross and follow him all the way, even to death. We proclaim this good news and that we might achieve and find the life that he offers, the whole world that he promises those who lay down their lives with him and for him. And we ask these things in Christ's name.